let's pray together again. Lord, and we come now to your word, and to the reading of it, the hearing of it, the preaching of it. And as we come into your presence, as we continue in your presence to hear you speak, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your glory and hearts that are open to your truth and your conviction and your comfort. We need you to attend the word with your spirit, so we ask that you would do that. Through your spirit, you would illuminate your word to us so that we would behold you. And I pray that you would strengthen me for the task of preaching. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Be with us now, O God. Speak to us in your tender mercy and in your power. And give us grace to hear your voice. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah. We're concluding our foray into the book, the prophecies of Isaiah, this morning with Isaiah 25. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 586. One of the joys of preaching steadily through the messianic promises and prophecies of Isaiah, like we've been doing since the beginning of Advent, is that week after week, we kind of get plunged into these amazingly deep and wonderful visions of eschatological joy and salvation. Uh, But if we're honest, one of the things that we miss out on is the narrative weight of sin uh, that, that hangs in between all of these wonderful visions of eschatological, eschatological joy and salvation, and it loads those prophecies with a sense of urgency. Just last week, Pastor Jimmy preached for us on Isaiah chapter 12, a gorgeous picture of worshipful joy, which then in sequence immediately gives way to chapter after chapter of judgment and condemnation of sin, judgment on the nations, judgments on God's people with very few expressions of hope knit into that. And that kind of mirrors everyday life, doesn't it? We, we can quickly go from the heights to the depths, can't we? And so we like Isaiah's first readers, long for the king to come and make all things new so the spiral of up and down can cease. And that's the promise for us. That's the vision that we see in Isaiah 25, a remarkable passage and a fitting end to our Advent and Christmas series. When the king comes, he will bring everlasting communion And so please hear with me now God's holy word. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. You've made the city a heap 
The fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place, but you subdue the noise of foreigners. As heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does it look like to organize your life, your entire life, around a single future expectation? What does it look like for you to organize your life around a future expectation? We might imagine a young child excited about a birthday party months away. And yet, organizing everything in his or her life around this one party, months to come, lists full of things to buy, a room that needs uh, spots for new toys, hope for toys to go, uh, and invitations that must be sent. This is a life organized around a future expectation. On our end, Melinda and I saw a picture of a life organized around a future expectation just a week ago in Ikea, of all places. If you've ever been to Ikea, then you know the routine. Before you go through the downstairs level, this maze of home goods and furnishings, before you go there, you go upstairs to the showrooms to get inspired as you walk through all of these multiple rooms that have been set up to portray all the promise of organized IKEA lifestyles. And usually, we've been there a number of times throughout the years, usually the rooms are, uh, are fairly neutral displays. 
Uh, oh, this is where the shoes would go. Oh, if this is a small apartment. This is where these things are going to fit. Oh, you have a bigger place with multiple kids. Uh, here's where it's going to be. But this time, the very first showroom that we walked into was organized around an incredibly moving story. Here's what we saw. It was an apartment designed for two, but occupied by only one person. And there's a shadow box on the wall framing some military medals and awards. There was a hook for hanging some freshly pressed dress blues, a photo on a rack of a recent wedding, and a dog, in this case a stuffed dog, portraying a, you know, what a real dog might look like. The dog lying in a camo print dog bed alongside of a camo print t-shirt and on the bedside table an iPad stand with a fake iPad with a FaceTime call coming in uh, from the, the picture on the FaceTime call was the picture of the groom from those pictures up on the wall, the groom uh, dressed in a uniform. And it doesn't take too long for us to put together the pieces on this a particular story. This room uh, was uh, portraying a military wife, a young military wife, whose husband uh, was away on duty. And while he was away, she had to set up the household awaiting his return. And so everywhere you looked in this little apartment, everything you saw, it, it just exuded anticipation. She, she wanted the beloved to come home. The air was thick with emotional significance. This was not just a collection of furniture. It really was a powerful story, powerful enough to move Melinda to tears. Just walking through the room, you could feel the longing. Everything was organized around one future expectation. Now, there's a spiritual lesson for us in this Ikea showroom. The church is like that. The church is like that young military wife. We await the return of our beloved. Our hearts are tight with anticipation for the Lord to come again. And that's what we've been exploring together throughout this Advent and Christmas season. And the invitation of all of these passages, and especially Isaiah 25, is for us to organize our entire lives around that future expectation when the King comes again. That's the point of Isaiah 25 that we've, we've just read. It is the anchor for all of our anticipation, all of our expectation. It's like one of those photos from World War II where the soldiers are returning home and stepping off the train and kissing their sweetheart. It's a picture of what we're waiting for. And it helps us live into it now. And so this morning we're going to ask three questions of Isaiah 25. What is this vision promise us? What does this vision offer us? And what does this vision ask of us? First, what does this vision promise us? Throughout the series, we've seen that the coming king brings grace, peace, hope, 
righteous rule and joy. And Isaiah 25 takes all of those themes and bundles them all together in this tantalizing picture of communion. The the entire passage celebrates a joyful, living, lasting, long-lasting relationship with God. Verses 1 through 5, an opening song of praise. Verses 9 through 12, a closing song of praise. And in the middle, the heart of the passage, verses 6 through 8, a grand and gracious feast. When the king comes, he will gather all of his people with himself, with the Lord, into an ongoing, joyful, everlasting togetherness. And here's what that togetherness looks like. There's provision. The king provides for the needs of his people. And not just the bare minimum, either. This king's provisions are lavish. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. These aren't table scraps from the king's table. These aren't off-brand microwavable meals that give calories but don't provide delight. God's food will be the best, the richest foods, the choicest wine. God spares no expense in inviting all the peoples to a feast fit for only a king. All the peoples get to enjoy these rich, luxurious provisions. All peoples. Meaning people from every region. Every region of this glorious planet that we live on. Not just Israel. And so this great feast that we read about foreshadows a great conversion. Uh, A great turning of the nation's hearts to submit themselves to the Lord in faith. This great feast happens when God's enemies become God's friends through grace. And because verse 4 talks so clearly about those in poverty, we can be sure that God is drawing into this feast the people that need nourishment the most. Of course, they can't pay for this feast. They, they couldn't pay at all to enter into the household of a king and enjoy the food fit for a king, and God doesn't want them to. This is a feast given to the nations and to the poor for free. He is the one making the feast. He's the one inviting the people into it. So regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status, God's people are invited to dine with him and receive provision for all of their needs. The feast here really just being a symbol for every need that we have in our human lives met. There is provision And in this great communion, there's protection. Verse 2, the enemy's stronghold will be torn down. 
never to be rebuilt. Verse 3, the ruthless nations will turn from their ruthless ways to fear the Lord. Verse 4, even though the breath of the ruthless is like a storm that, that pins the vulnerable up against a wall, the Lord has been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. And notice how easy it is for God to protect his people. Verse 5, as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. It's the picture of a cloud in the sky effortlessly just floating in front of the sun and, and wiping out all of the sun's vicious heat. It, it just happens without effort. That cloud is not trying hard to provide shade and cool. And in the same way, the Lord is not trying hard to defeat his enemies and protect his people. He's not wearing himself out desperately to bring this protection. He easily wins the battle. See, God is not like Optimus Prime from Michael Bay's first Transformers movie, where Optimus Prime, who is the hero, gets tossed around a whole lot and just barely wins the victory after, uh, after rallying all of his strength. No, that's not what this is like. It's more like Optimus Prime from one of, the, one of the following up Transformers movies where the fight is over before it even starts. That's Optimus Prime. He's Optimus Prime. It's his name. He wins. And this is the Lord God Almighty. He easily wins the battle, even against our greatest enemy. Verse 7, and he will Swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Death. The horrid veil, the shadow that hovers all over life like a ghost, haunting Every single one of our steps, not just the termination of life, but the suffering in between. One Old Testament scholar calls death an active force of negativity that moves to counter and cancel and prevent well-being. And I know that you know what it's like, what it's like to feel the weight of that suffocating veil bringing darkness but in this blessed future, death will be no more. The veil will be pulled away. The shadow will be dispersed. The curse will be gone entirely. And only in its place will be light. So there will be no more decay, no more illness, no more grief, no more dying. The king will protect us. There's provision there's protection. And in this glorious communion, there is presence. Divine presence radiates through this passage. The feast is with God, where he gathers his people to himself at his 
table and allows the nations to celebrate together. He is present. He's not absent. He'll be recognizable. He'll be personally available to his people. Isaiah says, O Lord, you are my God, verse 1. And then the nations say in verse 9, Behold, this is our God. The people will know him because the people will be with him. These are mouthwatering promises. Everlasting communion with God, abundant provision, gracious protection, glorious presence, all according to plan. All according to plan. Verse 1 of chapter 25, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. This great salvation is not accidental. God did not stumble his way into victory. He is not shocked by this outcome. This has been his plan from before time, which makes the Christmas story all that much more spectacular because this story in Isaiah 25 is about Jesus. And the plans that God had to save the world through his son, his son, God's own son, made man, born of the Virgin Mary, born into poverty, born his people to deliver, like we sing, which means that he was born to save, meaning he was born to die. Dying on a cross, an instrument of shame. But his death on the cross then removed our shame, our guilt. And then he does the most shocking, unexpected thing ever, which is that he comes back to life. After the cross is the empty tomb, that's how he defeats death forever, how he swallows up death forever and wins the victory for his people over our great enemy, the devil. Jesus Christ, crucified, raised from the dead. What a plan. You and I would never be planning like that. We would never expect a plan of so many twists and turns. And then, just think for a moment, that you are a part of his plan. That simultaneously, while before time, he was planning how to save the world through his son, he was planning how to save you. How before time, you were chosen. As Ephesians 1 says, chosen before the foundation of the earth, predestined to be his sons, his heirs to the throne. Again, we would not expect a story like this, but here it is. And here we are. God's plans are perfect. They're perfectly timed, perfectly executed, guaranteeing everlasting communion. What does this vision promise? 
everlasting communion with God through Christ. So what does that future promise do for us now? It's clear that Isaiah's goal is not merely to inform us about future events. The goal of this passage is to transform us in the present moment. And that leads to our second question of the morning. What does this vision offer us? This vision offers us confidence and comfort. Confidence because our present suffering will not have the final word. No matter what, his plans are sure. It's what the text says. God's word to us says his plans are sure. Nothing can break them. His saving purposes will happen. Confidence, comfort, because our God is wonderful. Listen to who God is. He is strong enough to dispatch the most fearsome and ruthless enemies with ease, and yet he's a refuge for the poor and the needy. He feeds the hungry out of his own abundance. He invites the nations, these rebel, ruthless nations, to repent and to come into his righteous kingdom and find and enjoy peace. He promises the Lord God promises to wipe away every tear from every face. What a comfort it is to know that this God is our God. I think of my friends who are ministering in Uganda, a country where 41% of the population lives in poverty. And half, almost half, of the entire population is under the age of 15. It is an intensely vulnerable country with generations of trauma. But that's not the whole story. There's more to Uganda than that. My friends also describe the faith of the Christians that they worship with on a weekly basis. Their church doesn't have a building. They worship outside. They worship under a mango tree, and when it rains, uh, they all have to run to get under the awning of the, the nearest building, otherwise they're going to get soaked. Their worship space is humble, but their God is glorious, and they know that their identity, that their, their, who they are, even in their humble surroundings, they are God's children. They are heirs, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Their physical circumstances may be meager, uh, but again, their worship is filled with joy and praise. They can praise this God with joy. They know who they are. They know their destiny. It's communion with this God, everlasting communion at a glorious feast. They can praise God, and they can pray with Fervent expectation because they know that their father has a special heart towards the poor and for those in need. Jesus says himself in Luke 6, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Or as Matthew puts it, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so, brothers and sisters, dear friends, regardless of your circumstances, whether you are poor materially or poor in spirit, take heart. As Matthew Henry writes, God protects his people in all weathers. So this future promise brings us a present blessing, confidence and comfort, confidence and comfort when this king becomes your king. And that leads to the final question of our morning and really the final question of this whole series, what does this vision ask of us? Because the prophecy, this stunning and this glorious, must not be ignored or written off or taken for granted. This prophecy calls for a response. What does this vision ask of us? To put it simply, this vision asks of us faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, because we're meant to trust this king and entrust ourselves to this king. We are meant to believe. Belief in the king is is the gateway into this heavenly feast. Of, Of course, there's an amazing inclusivity. This passage is very inclusive. All peoples all nations, all faces, all, time after time in this passage, are promised salvation. And yet, the inclusivity of this passage does not remove exclusivity. God's exclusive claims on our hearts. Salvation only occurs on this mountain, the mountain of the Lord. Salvation only happens through this king, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You must believe in Jesus to experience future communion with God. Otherwise, if you reject that, you will experience future judgment. And we see that in this passage. Verse 10, the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab shall be trampled down in his place. A straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Moab here stands for anyone who rejects God's offer of salvation through faith. Isaiah chapter 16 describes Moab like this. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. They they thought they could make it on their own. In their pride, they thought they could save themselves, and so they rebelled against the king, and they rejected his offer of salvation to their downfall. 
verse 11, he, Moab, will spread out his hands in the midst of the dunghill trying to achieve something for himself. As a swimmer who spreads his hands out to swim, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. The skill of his hands was not enough. So heed the warning. Pride Prideful self-righteousness and prideful self-sufficiency is the path to ruin. And that ruin is all the more tragic if you were to look at a map because in ancient Israel, Moab was a southern neighbor. They were right off the border of Israel. They were geographically close, but spiritually so far. Their proximity to the mountain of the Lord did not save them. And that's the point here. It doesn't matter how close you are to the church. You may be friends with a Christian. Kids, you may be children of Christian parents. You may attend worship on a daily basis, but your proximity to God will not save you. Only Jesus will save you. And so trust in him. This passage calls for belief. Believe in Jesus. And this vision of future salvation will be your future. That's faith. And after faith, hope. Because we can't embrace these great, beautiful promises and then immediately go out the door and live dour, anxious lives. Faith leads to hope, but hope is it's really an active endeavor. It's, it's not necessarily something where we just kind of all wake up in the morning and click our heels out the door because life is so grand. No, sometimes we have to work to experience hope. John Calvin wrote that even the smallest calamities will overwhelm us if we do not take ourselves to God. And sometimes that's really hard work, to take ourselves to God. But it's the good work of hope. To quote Matthew Henry again, hope fastens on to future happiness and waits for that. I I love that. Hope fastens on to future happiness and waits for that. And I'll be honest, this one's personal for me. Uh, For me, the Christmas blues came late. I was well past Christmas and into the new year when I felt a, a sickly sadness come into my soul that was only then compounded by some hard news that I got from friends. And so this week, I have had to uh, follow John Calvin and Matthew Henry in their advice to Christians. I have had to intentionally take myself to the Lord for hope. I've had to work at fastening myself onto future happiness uh, because I didn't have a lot of present happiness. 
And the Puritans were my guide in this. Uh, they were, they were my, my counselors. The Puritans constantly recommend meditating on Scripture, choosing one verse or one theme from Scripture and kind of making that your theme for the day, just returning to it time and time again, mulling it over in your mind and your heart, chewing on it until it sinks down deep and changes your heart. For me, this week, I just kept going back to Psalm 10, verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. I had to make that the, the mast that I tied myself around this week. The Lord is king forever and ever. And so when hard emotions come up, the Lord is king. And when tragedy strikes, the Lord is king and when things look bleak, the Lord is king. And when the clouds part, the Lord is king forever and ever. Now, it didn't change the hard news. I can honestly say it, it helped my heart. It did work on my heart. It is continuing to help my heart. And Isaiah 25 can do that for you too. Because this is a blessed picture of future happiness. Cling to it. Fasten yourselves to it and fight for hope. Faith, hope, and finally, love. Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Psalm 31, love the Lord, all you his saints. When we trust that the Lord will save us, and will bring us into beautiful, everlasting communion with God Most High. And when we let that faith bolster our hope, the natural outcome is love. This text asks us to love. To love God with heart, soul, mind, strength. To adore the one who so gloriously gave himself and his son for us. He is high and lifted up, and yet he is tenderly present. Now, this text begs us to say with Isaiah, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Love God. And then love the people God loves. Here are the people on God's heart. God tells us in this vision, who, who are the people on God's mind? In particular, as he sees the events of history, it's the poor, it's the needy, the foreigner, those who are far from God, and the nations. God wants these people at his feast. And that means we should want that too. Let the people that are on God's heart be on your hearts as well. The Australian Old Testament scholar Barry Webb reminds us of this truth. He says, God has been, God has always been, and always will be on the side of the poor and needy. It's something that we who profess to believe in him would do well to remember. And that's not liberation theology, by the way. That is what the Bible teaches us. That God loves the poor. So faith. 
saving belief in God's salvation and victory in Jesus. Hope, a living, vibrant, purposeful attachment to future happiness that can bleed into our current existence. Love, affection for God based on his glory and his grace, and then a commitment to care for those whom God cares about. That's what this text asks of us. And that's what it looks like for us to organize our entire lives around a future expectation. And when our lives are organized around faith, hope, and love, our lives will be unmistakably Christian. Like that apartment in the Ikea showroom, it will be easy to see the story shaping our lives. It's a future-oriented story, but it matters now. It's a story of sacrifice that leads to victory. It's a story of God's self-giving love, bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It's a story about communion with God as our destiny, everlasting communion with God. Now, this is a moving story. It's a powerful story that, our, uh, that we need to hear, that our friends and our neighbors need to hear. And so, friends, take up this promise. Take up the promise of Isaiah 25. Let that be the governing image in your life, a vision of everlasting communion with God. Pin that picture on the bulletin board of your hearts. Look at it frequently. Like the Belgic Confession said that we confessed earlier, look forward to that great day with longing so that when Christ comes again, we can sing with joy, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this vision of hopeful, worshipful joy and communion with you. And we do long to be caught up with you and with all the saints together on this holy mountain to enjoy you and your provision and your protection and especially your presence forever. We long for death to die and for this broken world to be made new. We thank you that that's our destiny and it is sure. We thank you that it is guaranteed. Thank you that you've already begun this great work through the resurrection. And we even now are beneficiaries of your living, living Holy Spirit. The resurrection life welling up even in our souls. Thank you. And so I pray now that we would be a, uh, a people of epiphany and of, of Advent and Christmas throughout the year, that we would carry this longing with us and it would shape everything we do.
Would our character as future-oriented people of hope be made known to all around us so that others would find themselves drawn towards your holy mountain in faith and so that your kingdom would come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do this. Uh, We crave it. And until then, strengthen us. We pray in the name of your Son. Amen.